Section 15 of France in the 19th Century. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. France in the 19th Century by Elizabeth Latimer. Chapter 10. Maximilian and Mexico. Part 1. Maximilian, Archduke of Austria, was born the same week that his cousin, the unfortunate son of Napoleon and Marie-Louise, had died. He grew to manhood handsome, well-educated, accomplished, and enterprising. He had the great gift of always making himself personally beloved. The navy was his profession, but his great desire was to be made viceroy of the then Austrian provinces of Italy. He felt sure that he could conciliate the Italians, and a great Italian statesman is reported to have said that it was well for Italian unity that his wish was never granted. His ideas were all liberal, and opposed to those of Metternich. His family mistrusted his political opinions, but the Italians, when brought into personal contact with him, soon learned to love him. They saw a great deal of him, for Trieste and Venice were at that period the naval stations of the Austrian Empire. He was, therefore, often in those places, and finally took up his residence in an earthly paradise upon the Adriatic, created by himself and called by him Miramar. In June 1857, when the Indian mutiny was at its height, though tidings of it had not yet reached the Western world, the Archduke Maximilian, whom the English royal family had never met, arrived at Windsor, and was hailed there as one who was soon to become a relative, for he was engaged to King Leopold's only daughter, the Princess Charlotte of Belgium. The Queen and her husband were charmed with Maximilian. Quote, "'He is a young prince,' writes Prince Albert, of whom we hear nothing but good, and Charlotte's alliance with him will be one of the heart. May heaven's blessing,' he adds, "'be upon a connection so happily begun, and in it may they both find their life's truest happiness.'" The Queen also wrote to her uncle Leopold, quote, "'The Archduke is charming, so clever, natural, kind and amiable, so English in his feelings and likings. With the exception of the mouth and chin, he is good-looking, but I think one does not the least care for that, he is so very kind, clever and pleasant. I wish you really joy, dearest uncle, at having got such a husband for dear Charlotte. I am sure he will make her happy, and do a great deal for Italy.' Prince Albert crossed over to Belgium for the wedding, and wrote to his wife, quote, "'Charlotte's whole being seems to have been warmed and unfolded by the love that is kindled in her heart. I have never seen so rapid a development in the space of one year. She appears to be happy and devoted to her husband with her whole soul, and eager to make herself worthy of her present position.'" At the time of her marriage the princess had just entered her seventeenth year. The wedding-day was made a little family fete at Windsor, in spite of Prince Albert's absence. Quote, the younger children, the Queen writes to her husband, are to have a half-holiday. Alice is to dine with us for the first time in the evening. We shall drink the Archduke's and the Archduchess's healths, and I have ordered wine for our servants and grog for our sailors to do the same. Maximilian had been round the world in his frigate, the Novara. He had travelled into Greece and Asia Minor, he had visited Spain, Portugal, and Sicily. He had been to Egypt and the Holy Land. He loved the ocean like a true sailor, and in 1856 he had taken up his residence at Trieste, to be near its shores. He would frequently go out in a light boat, even in rough weather, a dash of danger lending excitement to a struggle with the wind and waves. One day, in a storm, his light craft had been borne like a feather round the Cape Gignano. In a moment it lay at rest under the lee of the land. Maximilian landed, and found the spot so charming and the sea-view so superb, that he resolved to build a little villa there for fishing. He bought the land at once, 
and began by setting out exotics, persuaded that the soil of such a spot would be favourable to tropical vegetation. A year later he brought his young bride to this favoured spot, and with a golden wand transformed his bachelor's fishing-hut into the palace of an emperor. At this period of his life Maximilian, an author and a poet, was greatly interested in architecture. He drew the plans for an exquisite church, now one of the beauties of Vienna, and drafted with his own hand those for the grounds and castle of Miramar. The work was pushed on rapidly, yet in 1859, when Austria was forced to give up Lombardy, nothing at Miramar was complete except a fancy farmhouse on one of the heights of the property. Maximilian, however, made his home there with his wife, and they found it so delightful that when at length the castle was ready for occupation, they lingered in the farmhouse, which they loved as their first home. It was a large Swiss chalet, covered with vines and honeysuckle, surrounded by groves of camellias and Pyrrhus japonicas. How delicious life must have been to the husband and wife in this solitude, fragrant with flowers, vocal with the songs of birds, a glory of greenness round the house, the blue sky overhead, the glittering ocean at their feet, and holy love and loving-kindness everywhere around them. Maximilian's generosity rendered wealth indispensable to his complete happiness, for he loved to surround himself with artists, learned men, and men of letters. He paid them every kind of attention in his power, and did not omit those little gifts which are, quote, the beads on memory's rosary, end quote. Quote, one feels how happy life must have been to husband and wife in this new paradise, cries M. Victor Tissot. Yet it was paradise lost before long, for alas, in this, as in the other paradise, the Eve, the sweet young wife, was tempted by ambition. She took the apple, ate, and gave it to her husband. On April 10, 1867, the Mexican deputies commissioned to offer Maximilian the imperial crown arrived at Miramar. Quote, we come, said Don Gutierrez de Estrada, to beseech you to ascend the throne of Mexico, to which you have been called by the voice of a people weary of anarchy and civil war. We are assured you have the secret of conquering the hearts of all men, and excel in the rare knowledge of the art of government. Maximilian replied that he was ready to accept the honor offered him by the Mexican people, and that his government would be both liberal and constitutional. Quote, I shall prove, I trust, he said, that liberty may be made compatible with law. I shall respect your liberties and uphold order at the same time. End quote. Don Gutierrez thanked the archduke in the name of the Mexican nation, and then the new emperor swore upon the Gospels to labor for the happiness and prosperity of his people, and to protect their independent nationality. Don Gutierrez was then embraced by Maximilian, who hung around his neck the cross of the new order of Guadeloupe, of which he was the first member. But this acceptance of the imperial crown of Mexico was by no means a sudden thought with Maximilian. For eight months he had been debating the matter in his own heart, urged to acceptance of the crown by his wife, but dissuaded by his family. The history of the offer, connected as it is with one of Napoleon III's schemes for extending French influence, must be briefly told. Before the Civil War broke out in America, it had already entered the head of the Emperor that he would like to enter meddle in the affairs of Mexico. That unhappy country, which the United States had been accused of doing their best to keep in a chronic state of weakness, turbulence, and revolution, had been left to recover itself after the Mexican War, which had shorn away its fairest provinces. In 1853 Santa Anna, who had been president, dictator, exile, and conspirator by turns for thirty years, was recalled to Mexico, and a second time was made dictator. 
he assumed the title of serene highness and claimed the right to nominate his successor a popular revolution soon unseated him juarez of indian parentage was at its head the clerical party was outraged by the confiscation of the enormous possessions of the church and by the abolition of the right of mormain that is wills made upon deathbeds were pronounced thenceforth invalid so far as bequests to the church were concerned mexico is a country with eighteen hundred miles of coastline but few harbours it had in eighteen sixty no railroads and hardly any high roads of any kind its provinces were semi-independent its population widely scattered a large part of it was indian a still larger portion consisted of half-breeds pure-blooded spaniards were a small minority the feeling that stood mexico in lieu of patriotism was a keen hatred and jealousy of foreigners their very pride still keeps the mexicans from believing that there can be anything better than what they possess perpetual revolutions had educated the people into habits of lawlessness and as to dishonesty rank itself was no guarantee against petty larceny while in the larger rascalities of peculation bribe-taking and political treachery no nation had ever such opportunities for exercising its national capacity nor apparently did many mexicans have conscientious scruples as to its display under these circumstances it is no wonder that foreign bondholders complained loudly to their governments or that in the general confusion all manner of wrongs to englishmen frenchmen austrians and spaniards called loudly for redress that cry reached the french emperor's ears he proposed to england and spain that as mexico had at last got a government under juarez an interventionary force should appear off her coast composed of english french and spanish ships of war and that mexico should be summoned to redress their common wrongs all this was harmless the expedition was commanded by the spanish general prim but under the avowed object of demanding a redress of grievances the emperor napoleon concealed a more ambitious aim the united states were at war all their resources were absorbed in civil strife the most sagacious statesmen could not foresee that the end of that strife would be to make the country more great more rich more formidable and napoleon thought it was the very moment for attacking the monroe doctrine and for making as he said quote, the latin race hold equal sway with the anglo-saxon over the new world if he meant by the latin race the effete half indian mexican and south american peoples which were to be set as rivals against the anglo-saxon race represented by yankees southerners men of the west and the english in canada he was widely wrong in his calculation but it is probable that latin was his synonym for french in this connection the monroe doctrine as all americans know took its rise from certain words in a presidential message of mr monroe in eighteen twenty two though they were inserted in the message by mr adams they were to the effect that the united states would disturb no nation or government at present that is in eighteen twenty two existing on the north or south american continent but that they would oppose all attempts by any european government whatever to put down any free institutions that were the choice of the people or to impose upon them any form of government against their will napoleon the third did not quite dare to fly in the face of the monroe doctrine even though the united states were embarrassed by civil war there were plenty of mexican exiles in paris among them the don gutierrez who offered maximilian the imperial crown these men had secret interviews with the emperor thus the way was paved for maximilian long before the time came to act and possibly before he heard of the matter for there was a power behind the throne that was urging his elevation on the french emperor with all a woman's persuasive powers it was not until after the empress eugenie had been left regent of france during the campaign of italy in eighteen fifty nine that she took any part in politics 
but from that time her influence was freely exercised, though she interested herself chiefly in foreign affairs. She did not like Victor Emmanuel, nor her husband's policy as regarded Italy. She dreaded the destruction of the Pope's power as a temporal prince. Her sympathies were Austrian, and in conjunction with her friends, the Prince and Princess Metternich, she lost no opportunity of urging the establishment of Maximilian and Carlotta on the imperial throne of Mexico. She looked upon this as in some sort a compensation given by France to the House of Habsburg for its losses in Italy. To her imagination the expedition to Mexico seemed like a romance. She saw two lovers seated upon Montezuma's throne, the oldest throne in the New World, surrounded by the glories of the tropics. When there they would restore the privileges of the Catholic clergy, and would curb the revolutionary aspirations of the mongrel population of Mexico a population which, as a Spaniard, she hated and despised. To this end she intrigued with all her heart. Indeed, she and her friends the Metternichs acted in the preliminary arrangements of the plan the part of actual conspirators. After the French and Spanish forces landed in Mexico, accompanied by a few Englishmen, Juarez offered to make compensation for the wrongs complained of, and an agreement was drawn up and signed by General Prim and the French and English commanders at a place called La Soledad. England and Spain, when the agreement was sent to Europe for ratification, considered it satisfactory. France, having ulterior designs, repudiated it altogether. The Spaniards and the English therefore withdrew their forces, and the French remained to fight out the quarrel with Juarez alone. Up to this time no allusion had been made as to any change in the Mexican government, but now French agents began to intrigue in favor of an empire and Maximilian. A small assembly of Mexican notables was with great difficulty convened in the city of Mexico, from which Juarez was absent, being engaged in carrying on the war. The only persons concerned in this assembly who took any real interest in its objects were the clergy, who believed that a prince of the House of Austria would be likely to restore to them all their property and privileges. There can be no doubt that such a government as Maximilian would have established in Mexico would have been a happy thing for that country and for civilization but it is equally certain that the Mexicans, meaning by that term the great mass of the people, did not want such a government. Above all, they did not want for their ruler a foreigner, backed by a foreign potentate. The only raison d'etre for Maximilian's government in any Mexican's mind was not that it would bring order and peace into the country, but that it might bring money from the coffers of the new emperor's ally. But when after a while the reverse of peace and order was the result of this new government, and when the French emperor declined to advance any more funds, nothing kept any man true to Maximilian but the dread of what the party of Juarez might do to him when the cause of the emperor should be overthrown. With this explanation we will go back to Miramar, where Maximilian and Carlotta, unquestionably deceived by the political manipulations of the French emperor, believed, with joy and pride, that they were the choice of the Mexican people, and that they had nothing to do but to go forth and take possession of the promised land. On April 13, 1864, almost the darkest date during our war for the cause of the Federal Union, the Archduke Maximilian and his wife quitted the soil of Austria. Early in the morning, in the port of Trieste and on the road to Miramar, all were astir. Friends from all parts of the Austrian Empire were hastening to bid farewell to the Archduke whom they loved. The Novara and the French frigate Temis were lying off Trieste, ready to start and near them, riding at anchor, were six steamships belonging to the Austrian Lloyds, full of spectators. At about one o'clock p.m. the Emperor, with his wife leaning on his arm, entered the town hall of Trieste, where about twenty deputations were assembled to offer him farewell addresses. 
Maximilian was much moved, and when the burgomaster spoke of the grief that all the people of the city would feel at his departure, he burst into tears. He embraced the burgomaster, shook hands with those about him, and whispered, as if to himself, quote, "'Something tells me that I shall never see this dear country more.'" His sensitive and poetic nature was very susceptible to sad presentiments. His book teems with them. After the leave-taking, their majesties entered the magnificent barge prepared for their use by the city of Trieste. A salute of one hundred guns reverberated from the sides of the mountain, while twenty thousand hats and handkerchiefs waved a sad farewell. Maximilian and Carlotta embarked on board the Novara, which carried the Mexican flag. By four o'clock both vessels were well down in the offing, and not till then did the crowd separate. Those with telescopes had seen up to the last moment a figure standing on the poop-deck, with its face turned towards Miramar, and knew it for the form of Maximilian. The Novara touched at Jamaica. On May 28 it came in sight of the shores of Mexico, and cast anchor in the harbour of Vera Cruz. The Emperor and Empress had expected a public reception. There was nothing of the kind. No welcome awaited them, not even an official one. This was the more extraordinary because the Temis had been sent forward to announce the approach of the imperial party. Their disappointment at the want of enthusiasm was great. The French vice-admiral did his best to repair unfortunate omissions. He gave orders for a show of festivity, but it was plain to see, from the indifference of the people in the streets, that they had no part or lot in the demonstration. After leaving the sea-coast, Maximilian proceeded towards his capital in an old shabby English barouche, his journey seeming rather like the expedition of an adventurer than the progress of an emperor. Passing through Orizaba and Puebla, the emperor and empress entered Mexico on June 12. French agents had paid for flowers to be scattered in their path, and a theatrical kind of procession was prepared, which was not agreeable to either of them. The only part of the population which hailed their coming with delight were the descendants of the Aztecs, many of whom appeared on the occasion in feather-dresses preserved in their families since the time of Montezuma. In the evening there was a public performance at the theatre in honour of the new sovereigns, but not half the boxes were filled. The palace of Chapultepec, which had been assigned them as their residence, was destitute of comforts of any kind, and was much more like a second-class hotel than a habitation meet for princes. Yet even here one of Maximilian's first cares was to lay out the grounds and to plant flowers. He was advised to make an immediate journey through his new dominions, in order to judge for himself of the aspirations and resources of the people. But he found a country broken down by war, without roads, without schools, without agriculture. Quote, the only thing in this country which is well organized, sire, said a Mexican whom he was questioning about the state of things, is robbery. There was thieving everywhere. The emperor's palace and even his private apartments were not spared. One day, after a reception of officers high in military command, his revolver, inlaid with gold and ivory, which had lain on a table by his side, disappeared, and the empress missed two watches which had gone astray under the dexterous fingering of her maids of honour. General Lopez, who was then commandant of the palace, wishing to give the emperor a proof of the accomplishments of his subjects in matters of this kind, offered to steal off his writing-table within two hours, and without being noticed, any object agreed upon. He said he believed he could even carry off the table, a joke at which the emperor laughed heartily. When Maximilian returned to his capital, after a journey of great peril, he ordered the construction of several high-roads, granted lands and privileges to two or three railroad companies, founded a good many schools, and set on foot a Mexican academy of sciences. 
his own taste for natural history was so great that he gave some foundation for the charge made against him that he would frequently shut himself up in his workroom to stuff birds he devoted great attention to improvements in agriculture and planned a manufacturing city and a seaport on the gulf of mexico which he intended to call miramar his wife was an indefatigable helpmeet she wrote all his european correspondence but resented the interference of the french and could be curt and energetic when the occasion called for self-assertion an american gentleman who saw her at a court ball at this period thus describes her quote, she was imperial in every look and action the dignified and stately step so well suited to her station and with her perfectly natural would have seemed affectation in another she did not seem remarkably tall except in comparison with others her voice possessed a refinement peculiar to birth education and superior natures but while the emperor and empress were laboring for the improvement of their realm the juarists were increasing in strength and banditti carried on their enterprises with impunity up to the very gates of mexico day after day the stage was robbed between mexico and jalapa the marquis de radpont a quiet traveller saved himself by killing half a dozen highwaymen with his revolver but the belgian ambassador on his way to announce to their imperial majesties the accession of leopold ii the brother of carlotta was robbed of all his jewellery and money in consequence of these disorders the emperor signed on october three eighteen sixty five in spite of the remonstrances of marshal bazaine the french general-in-chief in mexico an order to the civil and military authorities to treat all armed guerrilla bands as brigands and to apply to them the utmost rigour of martial law this was at once interpreted into permission to shoot all prisoners and three promising young juarist generals who had fallen into the hands of one of maximilian's commanders were shot immediately leaving behind them pathetic farewell letters to their friends maximilian did not foresee that he was signing his own death warrant when he put his hand to this act of severity juarez himself with a body of his followers had retreated to the frontier ready to pass over into texas if the french attacked him but the french were too few and too scattered to occupy a vast region of country where every inhabited house was a refuge for their foes moreover the interest of napoleon in the empire of mexico was at an end he hated a long war at any time and was always ready to abandon an enterprise when he could not carry out his projects by a coup de main the war was extremely unpopular in france financial ruin had come upon many frenchmen from the failure of the mexican bonds negotiated by the banker yecker to pay interest to their bondholders the civil war in the united states was at an end and mr seward was instructing the american ambassador in paris to threaten the emperor or napoleon with the enforcement of the doctrine of president monroe he resolved to withdraw his troops from mexico and to advance no more money to maximilian he wrote these orders to marshal bazaine maximilian who fully understood by this time the condition of mexico and foresaw all the dangers of his position when the french troops should be withdrawn sent the empress at this crisis to europe to represent the situation of affairs to the french emperor and to remind him of his promises she embarked hurriedly and like a private person on board a french mail-steamer her stateroom was close to the propeller the noise coupled with her great anxiety and excitement deprived her almost entirely of sleep during the voyage on landing she hastened to paris went to an hotel and sent a message to the emperor requesting an interview this the emperor declined carlotta then hired a carriage and drove out to st cloud where she insisted on seeing him their interview was very painful at its close she exclaimed that she felt herself to blame being a daughter of the house of orleans for ever having put faith in the emperor napoleon or his promises 
notwithstanding this reproach the emperor who was soft-hearted pitied her extremely she remained at st cloud for some hours and that evening when surrounded by the court circle she threw back her head and begged for water the emperor hastened to bring it to her with his own hand but she exclaimed that she would not take it from him for she knew he wished to poison her it was her first attack of mania she was calmed and the symptoms passed off but continued at intervals to return from paris she went to rome and there her mental malady more and more declared itself she refused to eat anything but fruit for fear of poison her first visit to the pope was made while he was breakfasting when she snatched the cup of chocolate from his lips and swallowed it eagerly exclaiming quote, i am sure no one can have wished to poison you after several other manifestations of her disordered brain at the quirinal steps were taken to forward her to miramar on reaching that beloved place she grew more calm she recovered for a time her interest in music painting and literature the sclavic peasants around her considered her a saint when she passed they used to kneel down on the highway for years they refused to believe in maximilian's death Quote, he will come back we know he will come back was the cry of the dalmatians who cherished his memory End of section 15